welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. In this episode, we're going to be discussing bedwetting. What is bedwetting? What are some of the causes of bedwetting in kids? And ultimately, I think we want to get to the place where we understand, you know, uh, when do we become concerned about, you know, our children's bedwetting? And and what are the types of treatments uh, that we would recommend uh, for bedwetting? It's going to be an interesting conversation. And I am very fortunate uh, to be joined by our wonderful guest, Dr. Niku Lawrence. Uh, Welcome, a warm welcome to you, uh, Dr. Niku. And maybe just to kickstart the conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice, what does it entail? Thanks so much and thank you uh, for having me. So um, I'm a uh, urologist, uh, qualified about five years ago and um, primarily interested in pediatric urology, so children's urology. I'm based at uh, Steve Beaker Academic Hospital, which is the large referral hospital here in Pretoria. I am primarily responsible for pediatric urology there. So at Stibico, I only attend to children's urology. And then um, part of one of the um, realms of pediatric urology is the management of incontinence in children, of course. And part of that is then bedwetting, or as we say in the, the formal medical term, enuresis. I'm also based at the Pretoria Urology Hospital um, after hours and over weekends. Um, but yeah, basically between those two and uh, keen interest in, in children's urology. Okay, so I'm, I'm uh, just listening to that um, introduction of yourself. I am very assured that we are in good hands uh, to have this conversation around bedwetting. And I think a, a starting point uh, is what is bedwetting? You made mention of that uh, very fancy word. Uh, what is it? Enuresis. Enuresis. Enuresis, right. 100%. What is bedwetting? So bedwetting is basically, um, we can use it in both uh, context of a child, but also in the context of an adult. And that, that's a patient or a, a person that goes to bed, falls asleep, and then has an episode of incontinence or leakage of urine while they're asleep. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the basic or most basic definition of bedwetting. I think it's also important just to mention that bedwetting and incontinence is not the same. So the leakage of urine... Um, when a person is awake or when, for instance, a child is in bed but awake, that does not constitute bedwetting. So it's important to make that um, distinction because the, the treatment basically is different and also the, the workup for a patient or a child that presents with those symptoms are different from, from bedwetting. And and maybe just to, to facilitate my own understanding, what we're saying is that bedwetting happens when somebody is asleep. Absolutely. Whereas Absolutely. incontinence is that lack of ability to control oneself Absolutely. regardless. Absolutely. And if you wake up just before you have an episode of wetting yourself, that is still technically incontinence. So the person is asleep and they remain asleep and then wake up because they feel they're wet. Mm. Right? That's basically what mm. bedwetting constitutes. Um, just uh, another, just a technical term there, and there's also an, a distinction to be made between um, bedwetting that occurs when a child has never been dry, so we call that primary enuresis. So that's basically a child that grew up, was potty trained, and then since birth has never been dry at night. And then sure. there's an indistinction between that and, for instance, secondary enuresis. This is a child that was dry, so a child reached the age of five, and then went and slept through without ever wetting the bed Mm. for a period of at least six months. And then afterwards, 
again, start a big bidding. And it's important because usually if we go onto the history of these um, uh, secondary enuresis, you can then understand or look for something specifically, some trigger that might have led. And often you'd find it's a new sibling in the house. That's probably one of the, the most common reasons. Mm. And I think what we'll do now is actually to move to how does one identify bedwetting symptoms, etc. But, uh, you know, in fact, before symptoms, I want to talk to what are the causes of bedwetting in kids? Um, and, and I'm thinking about how at some point when our kids were going to sleep, we used to say things like, don't take water to bed. Uh, don't have water one hour before you go to bed. Uh, because we knew that, you know, that was almost one of the things that would guarantee uh, us waking up, uh, you know, the following day with a wet bed. True. But take me through what, what some of the causes are of bedwetting in kids. So basically the three main causes of bedwetting and um, I'm going to ask the, the listener here to in their mind just imagine basically as a child grows everything grows. All the organs, the heart the liver and one of the things that also grows is the bladder. So a bladder is basically an organ where urine is stored until such a point where it's convenient socially to pass urine. Right? Technically, bedwetting is only um, diagnosable from the age of five onwards. And, but, I mean, this is, this is for the experts. And this is for basically what the, what the textbooks tell us. And it's important to realize that when a person falls asleep, your brain actually produces a certain hormone. We call that AVP. And that hormone reduces the amount of urine that is produced during sleep. Mm. So it's, it's one of the components. In children, this system of AVP, this hormone being produced, is still immature. And it actually matures sometimes a little bit later after five. That's one of the main components. And that's also one of the areas on which um, the therapeutic or the treatment is focused. And that's the, the, the aspect of, of giving AVP. The second thing is bladder capacity. And that then links up with what I said while the child is growing. Mm. A child has a small bladder capacity, but also the way in which a child grows and then their bodily systems mature to realize, listen, my bladder is full. Mm. I'm in grade one or grade R. I'm in class. I can't just pass urine right now. It's different from an infant because if you have a child that's wearing a nappy, mm. um, they just pass in their urine spontaneously and that's actually a reflex. Mm. So part of the normal development is a mm. bladder capacity that increases, can accommodate more urine. Mm. That reflex that basically is suppressed, mm. stop. So the patient then, or the, the child then voids in a socially acceptable place. And then the last, and this is very important, especially um, we, we see this in children that have um, attention deficit disorders, so ADD and ADHD, and that's deep sleep. The majority of patients or children that are bedwetters have some component of sleeping very deeply. And often when I see a mom, she'd present and come to me and say, you know, doctor, my child, the house can burn down. I cannot wake him up. And that is, so if you add those three into a mix, you end up with a perfect storm. And that's often bedwetting that progresses and then uh, persists after the age of five years old. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, we're talking ages. This is this is insightful for me, doctor. We're talking ages, and we speak about how, for the most part, when a child is much smaller, it's that reflex. And then, of course, as they develop, um, that bladder capacity is developing, but also that AVP system is starting to, to develop and to mature. Take us through the ages. So, so typically, when do we expect that these, you know, the AVP system is developed enough or the bladder capacity has increased enough for a child to then stop kind of wetting the bed? Take me through the ages so um it depends on which system develops the fastest 
So often it is the case of AVP actually being there and being effective at the age of five. So technically, if a child still wets a bed at the age of five, that's enuresis or bed wetting. But then the child might be a very deep sleeper. Uh, and that's the majority or the, or the main component that's contributing towards a child still wetting their bed. And um, so there's, there's not an absolute cutoff way, but in each person, it's an individual. But basically, if all of these three systems have matured, then you'll have a person that hopefully has a normal bladder capacity for his or her age. Mm. That would be awoken with a full bladder. And then also where the, the, the DDAVP or the arginovasopressin, that fancy hormone, is an actual fact produced in sufficient quantities. Because there's also other um, medical conditions like diabetes or hypertension that comes um, to play in all the patients, obviously in adults, that has an impact on the production of AVP. Sure. Um, for instance, alcohol. Alcohol in adults, if you take alcohol, it suppresses AVP. So that's often why you wake up with a full bladder, not only because you had four beers, but because the alcohol in the beers suppresses the production of hormone. So it's, it's a bit more complex than just black and okay. white, yeah. I mean, I'm hearing that, um, but again, I'm sitting with a question where, and and I link this to kind of, you know, the, the, the old wives' tales, things that we hear. So I've got a child who is four years old, uh, who wets their bed. I share with my friends that my child is wetting their bed. They go, ah, it's okay. It's normal. Uh, three years down the line, this child is now seven years old and they're still wetting their bed. So for me, I still sit with a question that says, you know, at what age then should we expect bed wetting to stop? Mm. So um, I think it's also to uh, perhaps um, touch on the hereditary aspect of bed wetting. So um, often if I see a patient or a child for bedwetting, and I'm going to take a full history, I'm going to ask the parents, is there anybody in your family, a brother or sister, or yourselves, a mom or a dad, that also had bedwetting as a child? And there is a rough guide, or you can guesstimate, that the age when both parents, um, if they were bedwetters, turned dry, is probably the child, the age that the child turned dry. So if the mom or the dad was still bedwetting at seven, um, barring all external influences like trauma, etc., then that's probably the age which the child will become dry as well. Um, I think it's it's also just important. Um, you're speaking about the age when we'd expect we we have to first when we see a child and approach uh, uh, no, uh, have an approach of the treatment for the bedwetting exclude other things. So we're going to screen for diabetes. Mm. Is this um, a condition that is perhaps driven by not only um, uh, the fact that the child is wetting at bed, but also incontinent during the day? Mm. And that's where just once again the technical terms, we speak of monosymptomatic, so a single symptom, mm. bedwetting or enuresis, and that's the, the, the topic that we're discussing today. So mm. monosymptomatic enuresis, a child has no other symptoms, growing well, no daytime incontinence. Ah. That's very important to emphasize that. So this is a child that would, while they're awake, ask the teacher, ma'am, sir, I'd like to go to the loo, I need to pass urine, and they're able to hold their urine until they get so socially when they're awake, they're mm. continent, they're not going to have a, a small accident. But the issue comes when they're asleep. And when we move into the ambit of non-monosymptomatic, so there's more than one symptom in uresis, this is where we eventually start going into daytime incontinence, overactivity. So what overactivity means is that, that, that feeling that you constantly want to pass urine, and that's a whole different diagnosis or condition because there we start looking for secondary causes. So mm. other things, nerve problems, diseases like diabetes, etc., that we need to exclude first. So, doctor, um, you know, I'm thinking about what 
at which stage would a parent uh, you know, decide that I now need to take my child to go see a urologist for bedwetting. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very relevant question. And it, uh, basically, there's two instances that I can think of immediately. Um, intrafamilial or stress in the family. Often single parents, parents that have stressful jobs or where it becomes so difficult, there's perhaps a second child or a third child that comes into the, to the, to the fold. These parents are at the wit's end. Mm. So mom comes, um, she's perhaps a sole breadwinner or she is completely responsible at home and she's just, doctor, I don't sleep, um, highly strung, under a lot of pressure, I really need help. Mm. So often that would be one of the reasons why parents come, but also um, anticipating the possible complications or issues that a child can have growing up. So at five, a child is probably in what grade R, grade mm. zero, or going to grade zero, mm. but not yet in primary school. Mm. And then at seven, six, going to grade one, it is the interaction with friends. Mm. So unfortunately, it's a, it's a realistic, um, um, we need to admit it, that children can be quite vindictive with mm. one another. Mm. And if you're on a, on a sport camp or you're sleeping out with a friend, um, Parents don't ever want their children to be the one that's victimized or laughed at, mm. right? And it's an embarrassing thing. I think mm. um, many children that eventually do end up bedwetting into their teens are shy. They're shy mm. uh, away from social interaction. They sometimes struggle with relationships, specifically yeah. romantic relationships, because if you eventually get there, you, you, you're shy of, 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 of bearing yourself to your, your potential boyfriend, girlfriend, partner. Mm. So um, that, that, that's basically, so going from normal social interaction to eventually end up in a romantic relationship, that's, that's part of why I think it's important and why parents bring their children to, to address this issue. Mm. I mean, just, just listening to that, I'm even thinking about how sometimes that stigma starts at home. Absolutely. So if your child is bedwetting, um, you know, as parents, you start to feel a little bit embarrassed. There's a little bit of shame that's associated with it. Is there something wrong with my child? Is there something I didn't do right? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's important for us to really look at the, the psychological impact or that emotional impact that it has um, on children and to look at how we can even start with giving that support from home. Absolutely. And I think that's an important one. Absolutely. I think one of the to the parents listening today, I think it's important to emphasize this point and that's um, admonishing your child um, and also placing punitive measures. So, I mean, Spanking aside, which which is a, a controversial subject, but but um, penalizing your child for being the, the bed is going to have a completely uh, opposite effect. These children eventually withdraw into themselves. If you had an outgoing, boisterous, engaging, mm. extrovert type of child, you're going to turn them into something that you don't recognize. So I want to, while it's important to have very strict guidelines or very strict um, mm. um, guidelines in place as to how we're going to approach this, I think one of the important things that I always tell parents is once a child is old enough to make the beds, it's important that the mother initially helps the child to make the bed, but it's not the mom or the helper's responsibility to change the bed once mm. it's wet. Mm. You wet the bed, and I think it's important we'll help you, but um, perhaps not at 2 o'clock in the morning, but eventually you have to change the bed, because that's also a little bit of realization that you accept, listen, it's my issue, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to change the linen, mm. and also that I'm going to fight this. Mm. Because um, I've had many patients that present children that initially for you to struggle with bedwetting, once they achieve mm. continence at night, once the once they dry at night, it's a, it's it's amazing how to see the the self um, confidence that the, a child gains mm. um, once they turn dry. 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm loving this conversation uh, purely because I'm a mother myself and I do have uh, two little people. So, so the one is nine years old and so she's past that stage. And so I think it's important to be armed with the information um, to understand this because this will guide some of how we respond. Um, and I can remember there was a time with a nine-year-old when she was kind of wetting her bed and we were getting anxious that she's not moving past it when we did admonish her. Uh, there was a time when we felt like maybe we need to put some punitive measures. And even if it wasn't slapping her, but it was taking away a privilege. Um, and I think it's important. I'm sitting here feeling a little bit ashamed, actually. Um, but I think as as I become a, more aware and start to understand the subject a little bit better, there's an opportunity for me to respond differently with the other two. And also so the, the, converse, the converse to that is also to um, bring a reward system, the dry night sticker, reward, um, sleep out, ice cream, anything. I mean, insert reward here. Mm. Where you um, engage your child, put a um, sticker uh, sheet or whatever on the door, and for each dry night you you have a golden sticker. Mm. But just something that there is a an, an realization with child's um, behalf as well. This is my responsibility. I am able to win this. And once they achieve that, that they have that sense of satisfaction and achievement. Because at the end of the day, um, I think any child is still still ashamed when once they realize this is me. I don't want to be mm. with my bed. It is an inconvenience. Everybody's like looking, oh, Johnny, you know, he's the bedwetter. And and there's something that, that, that can be an albatross uh, mm-hmm. around a child's neck. 100%. Doctor, is there, is, there, is there value in sitting with your child and having a conversation with them about it? So saying, look, this is, this is what's happening. Um, are, they, are they able to respond to yes, why they're, yes, they're waking absolutely. the bed? No, absolutely. I think it's very important. They might not be able to immediately, especially the deep, deep sleepers and, uh, and, and, the, and the children, that, children have, that haven't had the full development of their blood. I mean, there's not something that they can do to speed that up. That mm. needs to happen with, 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 with time and, 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 and they'll, they'll change it with time. Um, um, I think it's important just for their own insight and to have their buy-in that this is something that we're going to fight together. It's not me being um, basically uh, left alone by my parents and that they are don't want to have anything to do with me because it's it's smelly and it's it's an embarrassment. Mm. This is a, a fight that we're fighting together. Mm. And I need your buy-in as a child because this is what we're going to do at dinner. We are going to limit the amount of fluid and you're not going to, behind my back, sneak to the fridge and go another glass of iced tea or <laughs> mm. Coke or whatever. Mm. Um, just so that they realize, listen, if you do that, mm. you're breaking the pact that you and I have made. Mm. So there's a bit of a, of a pact or, or, or agreement that you have with your, with your, with your children or mm. with, the, with the patient. Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm also thinking that in having the conversation, it could also afford a parent an opportunity to investigate if they are some kind of trauma. And maybe my follow on question to that is, can bedwetting be a sign of trauma? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, It is difficult to specifically identify whether it's sexual trauma or emotional abuse or whatever. Um, But I I think it's important that, that, yes, um, in a specific situation, perhaps a single parent, perhaps a foster child, if there is persistent uh, bedwetting, it's important to explore. You need to go down that route. If, um, for instance, a child comes to me and he or she is coming with a foster parent, try and see. I mean, 
is there any, we call them so, so the, the so-called red flags. Are there mm. any red flags? Mm. Any, during your physical examination, is there anything that's untoward? Um, um, perhaps also get collateral information from the teachers at school. Mm. Um, is there untoward sexualization of this child at a younger age? Just so to see that, 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 that there's not something that you miss. Because obviously, if there is, and bedwetting is not the, usually the only system, um, symptom that it presents with, there's usually other symptoms as well, like um, soiling yourself. So in caprices, these children that have undergone um, abuse or trauma often uh, soil themselves. Mm. So there's more than just simple uh, uh, bedwetting, and it's usually incontinence, daytime incontinence as well. Okay. So it's not just bedwetting at night. Um, but yes, if it's persistent, it just basic screening for that is important, I think. And maybe just to unpack the word trauma a little bit, kind of what do we mean by trauma? And I'm sitting here going, is it traumatic when, you know, a new sibling comes Absolutely. into the home? No, is I, is I that think, classified I, as a trauma? I think it is. I think in some form it's an emotional, it's, it's because um, for a firstborn child, the arrival of a second sibling is always something that's traumatic. Is this person, this new person now is going to usurp my attention, my monopoly that I had on mommy or daddy. So I do think that is a, a form of trauma and we, and, and we shouldn't um, basically negate or, or discard that mm. because we're not in that position as, 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 the, as the parents or the caregivers of the children. So it's important to perhaps explain and to um, uh, engage in your children on that level because I, I feel um, that's perhaps the, 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 the slightest of traumas that would occur that might be explained. And obviously from the onwards, um, other forms of trauma that I've referred to. But yes, I think that is something that, that we could classify as trauma. Okay. Can bedwetting be treated, doctor? I think we're sitting with that question Absolutely. now, wondering, can so this be treated? Parents listening like, can we just get to the important stuff? Can bedwetting be treated? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's important to, to emphasize to all the um, despondent parents out there mm. that might have a child that was already um, in primary school who still is afraid to sleep out, who is socially engaging but turning into a shy child mm. and because of their fear of stigma and the, the shame associated with bedwetting, it's completely treatable. Mm. Right? So just um, by the age of five, according to the ICS, International Continence Society and the ICCS, Children's Continence Society, children should attain uh, nocturnal continence. So they should be dry at night and um, not wet their beds. But there will be little mishaps here and there in the majority of children that's still considered normal, right? Mm. But once bedwetting becomes regular or if they, after the age of five, persist at night, mm. most evenings in a week to wet their beds, that is when parents should seek help. Um, there are various forms of um, uh, treatment that we we we, 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 we are going to discuss now. And I think the most important is um, basically the conservative management and then therapeutics or the the treatment that we can give, like uh, medicine for the bedwetting. One of the basic things that we should start discussing is: is this something that only occurs at night while the child is sleeping? So, are we really dealing with bedwetting? Uh. If the child is in any way incontinent during the day, so it has daytime incontinence, it's technically no longer just monosymptomatic bedwetting or enuresis, mm. and there we are going to look further, we're going to have a lower threshold to do some special investigations or scans to make sure that we're not dealing with, for instance, spina bifida that wasn't diagnosed at birth, a developmental abnormality, a bladder abnormality, or anything like that. Part of that evaluation will include a basic urinalysis that's just looking at the urine on a dipstick basic urine dipstick test, just to exclude basic things like, is there blood? Is your child having recurrent urinary tract infections? Once all of these things <coughs> come into play, 
that is going to guide us in a certain direction to do further scans or special X-rays or whatever, just to exclude other causes that could be having bedwetting as a symptom as well. Once we've excluded all, all of those things, part of the basic um, non-treatment or non-pharmacotherapy mm. um, things that we're going to assess is um, how is your child's normal routine in terms of passing urine, in terms of passing stool, we need to exclude constipation in a child with bedwetting. It's called, uh, there's actually a, a term for this, it's bladder bowel dysfunction, BBD. And once we've examined a child or done a basic X-ray just to see if there is what we call fecal loading or retention of stool, that's one of the first things we're going to address as well when mm. they need uh, a or bedwetting is give them a stool softener and make sure that they, their tummies work well. Yeah. So we're basically going to start with that. And then um, you alluded to it previously, um, the um, approach to fluid intake during the evening prior to bed. So perhaps not going completely saying a child mustn't have any fluids from five or six at night. Mm. But it depends on when parents have dinner. I often find parents that have dinner a little bit later, so half past seven or eight o'clock or even half past eight, um, perhaps they're very busy or transport or what for whatever reason. These children, because they eat later, there's still fluid in the food and then they might present with um, bedwetting more. So have an understanding with your child. Yes, you can have some fluid mm. um, at um, mm. a little bit of water, 20 or 30 moles. And thereafter, if it still persists, then say, okay, from dinner onwards, nothing to eat or drink. But basically within an hour and a half, an hour and a half of finishing dinner, there shouldn't be a significant amount of fluid that's consumed. Mm. All right. And then um, caffeinated beverages. So I think caffeinated beverages is a bit of controversy about it. <laughs> but I tell parents in all the children, it's fine if they have coffee during the morning. Mm. But in the late afternoon and during the evening, I think caffeinated beverages, including Coca-Cola or some form of a, of a soft drink containing uh, caffeine, should be out. Mm. Right? And, and then thereafter... Um, I think you probably will be asking me or parents will be asking me about bedwetting alarm. That's one of the non-pharmacotherapy or non-medicine options that we have. So bedwetting alarm is basically a small pad that a child sleeps on. And this pad has a sensor in that the moment that there is any fluid on it makes an audible sound alarm. Hmm. And this the theory behind it is this creates a self-reinforced awareness. So the brain wants the child wakes up because of the alarm ringing, will then associate a full bladder and the want or the need to pass urine with uh, awareness. Mm. Right? So they wake up prior to passing urine because the alarm has, by repetition, constituted or instituted that awareness in their mind. Sure. Bedwetting alarms don't work well in children that sleep deep. That's the main issue. Mm. I have many children that mm. went on to one of the online uh, sites, there's quite a few of these alarms. I'm not going to mention um, trade names, but you can go and Google mm. them for the parents. Mm. If your child sleeps deep, the chance of it not working is good. So unfortunately, it doesn't work for everybody. Mm. There's also a lot of data out on the studies that have been done that after you've stopped the bedwetting alarm, once the child has attained nighttime continence, they don't bedwet, it recurs. Yes. Right? So within three months, about, I think, 40 to 50% of children actually start wetting their beds again. Which, so. which I think for me was going to be one of the questions to say, does it not weaken one's natural kind of, like your natural muscle? Um, I imagine that you're building the muscle to be able to, 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 to recognize when you need to, you know, to go to the bathroom. So I, I, and so, yeah, I, think, I think it has to do with awareness. So basically your bladder that is stretched to capacity for your age at that point, telling your brain 
listen, I am full. And that fullness perception or, or, or yes. nerve conduction needs yes. to pierce the conscience. Mm. So if a child sleeps very deep, your bladder might be full, the nerve is telling your brain, listen, I'm full, I need to go, but it's not getting through. Yeah. So that is part of the developmental process that a child usually attains once they've reached um, adulthood or once they become a little bit older. So now it actually reinforces that and makes them more aware. So they would, would become a little bit more aware of their bladders, and that's the theory behind how a bedwetting alarm works. Okay, but, but once you take it away... They I think that's, that's that's what I'm basically. hearing is that once you take yeah. it away, then um, it almost feels like you have you have given me something uh, that's going to assist me to deal with my issue, and then you take that away, and all of a sudden I'm not empowered. Absolutely. And I think for me that's that's where I sit with a little bit of a question around: is it really effective? Uh, but that's a conversation yeah. for another day. Um, I think I think for me one of the things I'm hearing, doctor, is that you know. Um, I think we're encouraging uh, those who are listening to the conversation to actually go to a urologist if we pick up that there's ongoing bedwetting. So it's persistent. And, and I think the importance of this is really to say that sometimes what presents as bedwetting could be a symptom of something bigger. Absolutely. And, and I think that's why it's so important to go Absolutely. and to get the correct diagnosis. Absolutely. Is this really, um, you know, a case of the, and I'm going to try to use the fancy term, monosymptomatic enuresis. Absolutely. <laughs> is the only thing that is the only we're dealing with here, with, yeah. that bed wetting which presents at night, etc. Or are there are there other Absolutely. issues? Absolutely. And 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 bed wetting is simply a symptom of those. Absolutely, you're um, hitting the nail on the head because the, the 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 other symptoms. So a child that constantly while they're awake at school complaining to a teacher or a parent, "Mommy, I need to go to the bathroom. I need to go to the bathroom." Or a child that develops urine tract infection. Um, and needs to be admitted or has recurrent urinary tract infections and needs antibiotics constantly. Those are not symptoms or signs that we associate with mm. monosymptomatic enuresis, and they are urgent. They need to be evaluated. Blood on a um, uh, dipstick uh, <coughs> stick test that we did uh, usually do at the general practitioner, that is not something associated with bedwetting. Mm. And then any other developmental abnormality, and now I'm speaking to the really rare things, but unfortunately you do see them, and I think it's it's the it's the um, terrible um, fear of any parent that their children could have a terrible condition, whether it's um, an underlying cancer or mm. a neurological condition. Unfortunately, incontinence is often one of the first symptoms associated yeah. with other conditions. So if you see if you see your child struggling to walk, and I'm, I mean these are, as I say, the true exceptions, mm. or they're losing weight, or there's a mass, or anything that is not typical of a healthy growing, inquisitive, well-developing child, Mm. therein lies the urgency. These things need to be evaluated urgently. And by urgently, I mean within a week or two, not nothing longer than that. Mm. So, so doctor, let's, let's talk to treatments that you would not recommend. So I think sometimes as parents, we're guilty um, of going to Dr. Google, um, and Dr. Google says, this is what you should do. And I think we sometimes, um, you know, can be blamed for not getting that second opinion. And by the time we go to the urologist, um, the urologist is saying, who told you to do this? And you're holding your phone up very shyly to say, I went to Dr. Google and they said, this is what I must do. What would you not recommend? Um, first of all, just a, a, a quick comment on Google. I encourage parents to go on Google, but also Google with a pinch of salt. Um, if you want to... Um, have that information, just see how often it's recommended. And, and and these days on social media, it's so easy to spread misinformation. I think if we just look at the news in South Africa and, and what we see, just for one second, take a step back and ask yourself, does this sound realistic? 
So uh, caveat from the doctor, ask yourself, does it sound realistic? I mean, burning incense, and I'm not disrespectful or anything, but, <laughs> but, but let's be realistic whether it's going to work or it's not going to work. Mm. Um, I think we've alluded to one of the things that you should not be not be doing, mm. um, and it doesn't link up with the pharmacotherapy, but it, it links up with, uh, with uh, um, conservative management, and that's the punitive measures. Mm. So please don't, because your child is wetting their beds, um, engage in spanking or anything that is going to affect them and and also i mean um, put the blame on them mm. so um, uh, my perception of children are they come to you with a simple need either problem or they won't even come to you with a problem you need to help them with their problem and then realize you're in the position as the adult as the parent as the caretaker to address this mm. no child child will willingly wet their beds and run the risk of being shamed or being embarrassed mm. by the smell, by the rigmarole associated with the, with the wet, uh, wet linen. So that's definitely um, pointing it out and um, telling them, listen, you're going to help us with this. this week. We're going to support you as parents or caretakers in getting through this. That's important. And I think, doctor, sorry, just to step mm, in no there to say, I think for me, listening to that, you know, just, just be mindful not to blame because, you know, through some of the knowledge we've I've, I've, I've uncovered today, sometimes it is hereditary. Absolutely. Sometimes it is genetic. A- and it isn't, it isn't the child to blame. There's, there, there are other factors absolutely. to consider. And I think in the light of that, we certainly shouldn't be blaming these children. I always have a light, a light moment in my practice if I sit in, um, in, in consultation with two parents <laughs> and um, I, I ask the question, so is there any history, um, history of bedwetting and the mother looks at the father and he turns red? Because I mean, then there's an obvious reason and, and there's, there's the, we, we don't have the exact number of genes or the exact and definite genes um, that have been identified but there's definitely a polygenic, so more than one gene sure. and they are hereditary and it can come from any of the parents, mother or father, so X or Y in the case of a boy. Um, so yes, it is hereditary and I think just saying, listen, daddy also wet his bed when he was younger, but look, I mean, he's, he's dry now, hopefully, um, <laughs> that um, we make sure that, um, that the, the children are supported by realizing this is not something we're abandoning to we mm. sort it out together. So in terms of, back to the question, what treatments would I not recommend? I mean, there aren't, um, I've not come across many um, non-medical treatments. Uh, parents usually know of the medical treatments, so there's not specifically anything that I can recommend, but specifically I want to emphasize the, the punitive measures when children do, uh, mm. do wet their beds. That's one thing that we should be avoiding. Okay, and doctor, uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, we're living in South Africa, doctor, and I'm thinking about access to urologists. So maybe just give us a sense of, I mean, do we have widespread urologists? Am I able to kind of just, you know, uh, find a urologist anywhere and, and everywhere? Um, that's, the, that's the first question. Um, and the second question, I suppose, for me becomes then what, what would be, you know, the first point of contact necessarily? Does it always have to go to a urologist or could I just simply go to a GP? I think that's a very valid question. So just on your first question, the access, um, there are urologists at all big five of the quaternary, so-called quaternary hospitals in South Africa. So these are the designated hospitals by the Minister of Health. This is now the public sector where we treat the most complex and obviously the most specialized of services. At CBCO Hospital, we have a dedicated pediatric urology service. So if a parent um, wouldn't be able to access private health care, they'd be seeing me in the public hospital as well one of the junior doctors that I work with and all the pharmacotherapeutics, so the medicine that we have in private is also available at Stibica and, and perhaps then just a shout out because I think what we do at Stibica, we really try and offer a service that is on par with the best service that you'll be able to get in private. 
anything and everything that you'd be able to get in private. If you don't have any medical aid, you'd be able to get at the pediatric neurology service at Steve Nico, including all of the new types of medicines that we treat incontinence and bedwetting with. So that's where we access. So typically these children, private or private, uh, public or private, would access help from a general practitioner. The general practitioner, if they have an interest a little bit in pediatric health, would they institute some form of treatment, look at the constipation if it is associated, address that, ask a few questions, um, clarifying or um, looking for those red flag symptoms. Once those have been excluded, they're going to institute some form, institute some form of treatment. And if that should fail, I think referral to a urologist at that point. So mm. once first-line treatment has failed, they should be referring to a urologist. There are many parents, also parents um, that have access to medical aid, that would perhaps not feel comfortable taking their children to a general practitioner, or perhaps their GP just tells them straight, listen, I have no interest or no um, expertise in pediatric health, and then in those cases they can contact a urologist directly. Mm. And then once they've seen a urologist, there are some urologists that still say, I don't want to treat children for bedwetting, or it's uh, not in something that I have an interest in. And in those cases, there are dedicated pediatric urologists or general urologists with an interest um, in pediatric urology, so focusing on children. Mm. These are eventually the specialists with which a parent and also those parents with children that have refractory aneurysis sure. should be seeing. And we are hope to offer a service where we can say, listen, we've excluded all the serious stuff and we can put parents' fear, fears at ease. Okay, thank you so much for that, doctor. And maybe as we wrap up the conversation, um, I'm not sure if there are any common questions that you typically hear from parents that we may not have covered um, that you can share with us. Um, I think it, it, it links up with the more severe or the more refractory types of disease. Um, so if you look at a, a retrospective evaluation of bedwetting, so looking back in terms of age, it's basically a curve that slowly decreases. So by five years, 60 to 70% of children will be dry. Mm. By eight and nine years, it slowly goes down. Eventually, when you get to 16 years of age, so slowly in puberty, there's still anything between three and 5% of patients. So three to five out of every 100 children or adolescents at that point, that will still be bedwetting. And I want to put out a word for those parents that have might, might have tried everything and uh, spent a huge amount of money in an attempt to get the children dry. Once we reach that point, it is a no holds barred because in these cases we search until we have an answer mm. for what is causing bedwetting. And in some cases you still end up not finding a clear organic or neurological whatever cause for the bedwetting. And there, that's then where we really start using um, the various types of medicine that aren't necessarily first or even second line treatment. And um, I think that's definitely a case for a specialist or a specialist in the field that has a specific interest in refractory aneurysis. So don't give up hope. Get to know who can help you. And if you get to the right person or the right person with an interest in the field, there's definitely something that we can still do. I think that's very encouraging. And I think it's important because I imagine that you deal with some cases where, you know, some parents have been on this journey for a very long time. It's become debilitating and frustrating both for the parents and for the child who's experiencing this. So I think, I mean, a word of thanks to you for that, for that encouraging word. Uh, so parents, that's, that's it. You know, go and get the treatment. Don't give up. Um, you know, doctors will do the best they can to get to some sense of what is happening and how can we treat this. And then, doctor, maybe just as we close it off, um, this has been an empowering conversation. A couple of takeaways for the person who's sitting saying, you know, um, you know, what, what, what do I take away from this conversation? Um, I think the most important thing is bedwetting is completely treatable. 
don't have a sticker approach. The current approach is, is better. So a rewarding approach for bedwetting in children is, is more. Um, and then if something is bothering you, I think I, I alluded to the red flag symptoms. The red flag symptoms should not be ignored. They should be addressed early on. And um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's, for me, it's almost the, uh, one of the most rewarding things to see in pediatric urology. If you have a child that perhaps has been in primary school for a while and was still bedwetting, couldn't engage socially, that you work up from A to Z, get to a point where the child is now dry at night to see the change in their personality because you're dealing with a completely different human being. Mm. Somebody that's shy and expensive um, mm. and, and perhaps um, not themselves to a person that becomes engaging and you see this personality. So for me, that's one of the most engaging or rewarding things to, to see in pediatric logic once you treat bedwetting successfully. Doctor, this has been uh, insightful. This has certainly been empowering for me as, as, a, as a mother to, to little people. And I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways is to really say, you know, it's, it's important to get a very clear sense of, of what the actual issue is if we start to pick up that this is persistent. Uh, so to go and to seek the necessary professional help. Uh, to help us to diagnose exactly what the issue is, one. But I think for me also just that, um, you know, that sensitivity, that care and that support, you know, that we can offer back at home. I think I take that with me as a big one, uh, you know, to not to not be punitive, uh, but rather to really show support uh, for what this child is going through. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the time that you have dedicated to the conversation. And I know that this is going to be uh, valuable uh, to, to our listeners. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Faring South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Faring IBD Health Diary app today. The Faring IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.